0: the book of Revelation, chapter 14. If you did not get a study sheet when you came in, it would be important for you to get one. It'll help you at least to see the train of thought. And we're going to uh, we're gonna need to try to uh, review uh, at least the first part very, very quickly. Now, I realize that there are some of you that are coming in for the first time this morning. You're coming into our study of the book of Revelation. You can see that at the mark uh, right over on this side on front, too, we've got some folks that need one. Uh, but some of you are coming into our study of the book of revelation for the first time this morning And you can see at the top of your study sheet that this is now the hundred and first Message that we've had in this so for me to bring you totally up to speed would be a, a human impossibility And uh, just so that you can understand the big picture of where we are we're in revelation chapter 14 Where our Lord is describing for us a group of people, a very famous group of people. In fact, many cults have been started off of trying to become this group of people. They are the infamous 144,000. We met them back in Revelation chapter 7 when they were carrying out their ministry on the earth. And basically the way that it comes down is this. We're living right now in what is called the church age. That means that God is carrying out his plan on this earth through Places just like this not buildings but people who are born again by the Spirit of God who comprise the church We are the vehicle that God is using to carry out his plan on the earth But what the Bible says is that in the very near future? What is going to take place is heaven is going to open and the Lord Jesus Christ is going to descend There's gonna be a shout. There's gonna be a voice a trumpet And all the believers in Christ will be bodily removed off of the face of this planet to be with the Lord. That is going to, on this earth, it's going to kick this earth into a seven-year period of tribulation. It is where God is going to once again turn his attention to the nation of Israel. He's going to fulfill his promises to that nation. And at the end of that seven years, he's going to return to set up his kingdom, what is called the millennium. He's going to sit on a throne in Jerusalem where for a period of a thousand years, he will rule and reign on this planet and finally get the glory that he deserves. But once the church has been removed and the world is thrust in this period of tribulation. There is a group of 144,000. There are 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And God is supernaturally going to reveal himself to them. They will call upon the name of the Lord. They will be saved. And they will be the ones that carry out the mission during the tribulation period. And they will be his agents to go into every nook and cranny on this planet with the gospel of Jesus Christ and what the Bible says in Revelation chapter 7 is that there will be those from every kindred and tongue and tribe and people and nation who are going to receive the Lord Jesus Christ during that horrendous period of time they will not be however people who have ever had the opportunity to have heard the gospel so the fact is everybody that's going to be in this room today is not going to be an open game for the 144,000 to witness to you Because you had the opportunity today. So it's a very, very serious thing that we're we're, we're talking about. But this group of 144,000, what we find in Revelation chapter 7 is they're always where they're supposed to be. They always do what they're supposed to do. And when we see them in Revelation chapter 14, what has happened is now the tribulation is over and they have been brought to the holy Mount Zion. And they are with the Lord and now they're being rewarded for the work that they've done on the earth. And what he's doing in this passage is he is explaining to us the characteristics of this group. And so what we've been doing, because this group of people is such a, an outstanding group of people, and because this is a group of people that always did it right, we as believers in these last days are trying to look at their example and learn some lessons from them. And it's very important if you're a guest with us today to understand that in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, our Lord writes seven letters to seven churches. Those seven letters put into the context of the book of Revelation represent seven periods of church history. We are now living in the seventh and final period of church history. It's outlined for us in the letter to the Laodiceans. And so this morning, as you hear me make reference to Laodicea, What we're talking about is that final period of church history that you and I are living in. When I make reference to Laodiceans, I'm talking about those who profess to know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior in these last days who, as you see in Revelation chapter 3, as far as God is concerned, we've got a long, long way to go and our biggest problem is that we think that we don't. We think that we've got it all together, and because of that, it keeps us from ever really becoming what our Lord wants us to become. But in Revelation chapter 14, in the midst of talking about the various characteristics that this group of 144,000 have, one of the things that have just captured our attention, or at least the pastors on Sunday morning, is what is found in the middle of verse 4. It says, these are they, talking about the 144,000, which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. And what this has done is it's opened up to us what it means to really follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this group of 144,000, they did it right. And God's rewarding them here because in eternity, what happens? If you ever want to know where Jesus is, just look for the 144,000 because they're going to be right there following the Lamb. No matter where the Lord goes, they're going to be right there. And what we've been seeing is that is what the Lord wants of those of us that are living in this period of time, in these Laodicean days, he is wanting us to be followers of the Lamb just like that. And so we've gone to Mark chapter 8 and verse 34, where Jesus extended an open invitation for people to follow him. But he said that before you could follow him, there are two prerequisites. Jesus very clearly said, Whosoever will come after me, let him, what's the first thing, deny himself. And the second thing, take up his cross and then follow. And now listen, folks. Those two things have always been very costly prerequisites and would have always caused people to just step back and and count the cost. If you're going to follow, it means... You first must deny yourself, and secondly, you must take up your cross. Now, it's always been costly, but what we've been talking about over the past several months now is that for those of us that are living in these last days, when we read those prerequisites, we've got to make sure that we're reading them against the backdrop of what our Lord said would be characteristic of those of us who are believers in these last days. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 1 through 4, he lets us know that there are two key characteristics that are true about us, and folks, now listen, you've got to make sure that you understand these if you're going to really understand this thing of following, because what Jesus said in in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1 is that what is characteristic of us in these last days is that we are lovers of of our own selves and the plain simple fact is folks it is a biblical impossibility to deny yourself on one hand and love yourself on the other there's a second thing that he says that is true of us in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 4, and that is not only do we love ourselves, but what it says is that we love pleasure. So listen, when we come and Jesus says to us that the, one of the prerequisites of following him is that we're going to take up our cross, we've got to understand that what God says is characteristic of us is that we love pleasure. And just as it is a biblical impossibility to deny yourself and love yourself at the same time, it is also a biblical impossibility to love pleasure and take up your cross. You can't do both of those. They're mutually exclusive. And to be quite honest with you, that's why we've taken such a long time to pound these things because the fact is there's lots of people in these last days that we're living in they claim to be followers of jesus christ but they've never truly been born again because they've never come to the true christ and denied themselves they've never come to the true christ and taken up their cross and even more than there being people that that fit that bill there are, are others who like many in this room think they've denied themselves and think they've taken up the cross while the truth is we continue to love ourselves and we continue to love pleasure and and i will remind you that that too is characteristic of those of us that are living in this last days jesus told us that back in revelation chapter 3 and verse verse 18 and what he what he said is that we would be that group of people that through our eyes as we look at our church and as we look at ourselves we look at ourselves and we see that we've got it all together And he says, and you don't realize that in his eyes, the way that he sees us is that we're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And so what we've been doing is we've been trying to make sure that we've allowed the Lord to let us see this, to see this thing of following him and what it means to deny ourselves and take up our cross. We've been trying to make sure that we see this from his perspective. And we've been trying to take the time to let the Word of God, as it says in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 18, become eye salved, that we can use to anoint our eyes so that we might see the way that He sees. And what we've been talking about now for the past several weeks is what it really means to take up your cross. And how that fits into this whole thing of, of following the Lord Jesus Christ. And we started talking about the fact, and you can see on your outline there, that if we're really going to understand what Jesus was talking about when he said this, we first have to understand the reconciliation of the cross. And that's letter A on your outline. The reconciliation of the cross. And what that means is this. When God created the first man, the first woman in the garden, what the Bible teaches is that He created them to have a love relationship with Him. They were in harmony together. And the Bible says that in the cool of the day that, that God would come down and He would walk with His creation. But you see, in this love relationship, God gave them a choice. God is holy. And God wanted this love relationship, but He didn't make them a robot. He gave them a choice. And the choice was represented in a tree that represented everything that He wasn't. They're evil and in sin and unholiness and so God gave them the choice they could continue that love relationship with him or they could choose their own way they could choose the way of evil and and go that route and of course we know that our parents our first parents Adam and Eve they made that choice and every single one of us have fallen uh, have, have fallen in in that same path the Bible teaches that we have all chosen our own way we've all gone our own way Against God the way of sin and you see here was the deal God is holy and once we entered into sin God could not coexist with sin But God is also love. That's why we were created in the first place. And so what God did is this God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ and came to this planet Because what he wanted to do is he wanted to reconcile us to himself we were in our love relationship with God where we were in harmony with Him, but sin separated us from Him. And so God, in His love and mercy and grace, came to this planet and died our death, paid our debt on the cross so that we could be brought back into that harmonious relationship with God once again. And the Bible says in Colossians chapter 1, verses 20-23, to 23, that the way that God did that was through the Lord Jesus Christ Coming to this planet, shedding his blood, and dying on that cross. That's the way that we are reconciled. And listen, if you will ever, ever, ever be reconciled to God, it won't be apart from the person and the cross of Jesus Christ. That's where we all get in. That's the reconciliation of the cross. And then we started talking about small letter B on your outline, the explanation of the cross the explanation of the cross now listen the moment you come to the cross of christ what happens when you reach out to embrace the lord jesus christ as your savior the bible teaches that in the moment in the twinkling of an eye what happens is you are instantaneously translated out of the kingdom of darkness and placed into the kingdom of his dear son his dear son your sins That separated you from him are removed, the Bible says, as far as the east is from the west. He he takes your sin and he gives you in return his righteousness. And at that moment, you are placed in Christ and Christ is placed in you. And then Ephesians chapter 1 says that then you are then sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And what has taken place is you've been reconciled to God. However, At that moment, that cross of Christ that reconciled you, that cross that the Lord Jesus Christ carried on his back, that cross that the Lord Jesus Christ suffered upon, that cross on which he shed his blood and was the instrument of his own execution, at the moment you receive the Lord Jesus Christ, that cross becomes your cross you take his cross and his cross becomes your cross and then bearing the instrument of your own execution the death of self we now follow christ now folks you don't hear much of that in the laodicean age but that's what jesus was talking about in mark chapter 8 and verse 34. that's the explanation Of the cross, and that led us to let her see the nullification of the cross. The nullification of the cross. Uh, Paul talked about in First Corinthians chapter one, verses seventeen and eighteen. The fact that through listen to what he said, He he said through the wisdom of words, what we do is we take the power of God in salvation, and listen power of God in salvation is the cross. And what Paul says is through the wisdom of words, we make its power of none effect, or we we nullify it. And we've talked about how that in these last days, because as 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18 says, because the world hears that message of the preaching of the cross of Christ, again... Which is the power of God in salvation. And the world looks at that message and that what, what it says in 1 Corinthians 1 18 is that the world thinks that that is foolishness and what's happened in the Laodicean age is because we don't want to look foolish to the world. We've begun to employ the wisdom of words in what we call the gospel And because we employ the wisdom of words, it becomes no gospel at all because it's a powerless gospel because the cross is taken out. We want to nullify the cross. And I'm telling you, in these last days, folks, there's lots of people who claim to be followers of Christ but know no cross. In fact, when they called upon the name of the Lord, the issue wasn't even sin. They were coming to get something from Him. Peace, joy, meaning in life, happiness. When the issue of salvation, folks, is sin. And the only thing that can bring us into that relationship with God and remove that sin is the preaching of the cross. And no matter how foolish the world thinks that message is, it's the only message that can save us. And what's wild... What is just so wild is that we've watched the preaching of the cross go by and we don't even recognize it. And then when we ended last time, we just begun to talk about letter D, the crucifixion of the cross. The crucifixion of the cross. And and you see, as Bible-believing fundamentalists... (laughs) This is something we know all about, isn't it? I mean, when we're talking about the reconciliation of the cross and it was our Lord's crucifixion on the cross as he shed his blood and offered himself as a, a spotless sacrifice for our sin, and then apart from his crucifixion on that cross, there's no forgiveness, there's no reconciliation, there's no salvation. Man, listen, we understand that, right? Hello? That, 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 this is not a trick question. We understand that, right? We, we believe that. We, we rejoice about that. We sing about that. The truth is... We'd even die for that truth, would we not? I mean, And this is important stuff. And listen, that's all wonderful, but the fact is, biblically, now listen, biblically, there is another dimension of the crucifixion of the cross that, to be quite honest about it, we don't understand. And the sad truth is, I'm not really sure that we want to understand it. Because the other dimension of the crucifixion doesn't have to do with our Lord's death on the cross. It has to do with our death on the cross. It has to do with with our crucifixion, the crucifixion of of self, the, the daily, continuous crucifixion of our flesh. And the way that I gave you this, this to you last time is that there's two operations of the cross. This is on the second sheet if you haven't already made your way there. That's really what we're talking about here. There's two operations of the cross. Now, now follow along here. The first one has to do with our Lord's death on the cross that brings our eternal salvation. Now that's the cross that we preach. That's the cross that all of us know about. It has to do with our Lord's death on the cross that brings our eternal salvation. The second one, the second operation of the cross has to do with our own death on the cross that brings our daily sanctification. And this is what Paul was talking about in Galatians 2.20 when he said, I am crucified with Christ. Listen, Paul was saying, I haven't just received what Christ provided for me through his crucifixion. I, listen, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And this is the one that I told you last time, that in in my estimation, there wouldn't be one believer in a thousand who would understand the second operation of the cross, and and, and folks, I, I'm not. This is not real entertaining stuff that we're talking about here right now. But I want to just tell you, if you're ever really going to kick into what the Christian life is all about, you ought to you ought to just. I mean, you ought to beat yourself <laughs> to try to stay awake today, grab hold of what he's talking about here, because I'm telling you. In Laodicea, with the love of self and the love of pleasure and everything that we've got going against us, we really don't understand what we're talking about here when we're talking about the crucifixion of ourself. And I want to take just a second to make sure that we understand the difference between the two operations of the cross. Now, the first one, this is on the left-hand side. The first one refers to my positional holiness, my positional holiness, the, the fact that according to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2, when, when I came to the cross to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior by calling upon his name, listen, I was instantaneously placed in Christ, which according to Romans chapter 6 verses 3 to 5 means that I died with him and I was buried with him and I rose to new life in him and because I am now in him the father sees me the way that he sees Christ you see that Colossians 3 3 says that I am dead and my life listen to it is hid with Christ in God you see now that's why the father sees me the way that he sees his son because my life is hid In his son and because of that according to Colossians chapter 1 and verse 22 the father now sees me as holy how about that I know you don't see me like that but in my position in Christ that's the way the father sees me he sees me as unblameable and he sees me as unreprovable. now that's my position in Christ or my my standing in him listen because of the crucifixion of his cross. And listen, what we just explained there, it is already a settled fact. Positionally in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, I have been made the righteousness of God in Christ. Listen, that's the incredible work of the first operation of the cross. And again, it has to do with our Lord's death on the cross that brings our eternal salvation. But the second operation of the cross has to do with something else. This one has to do, as I said, with our own death on the cross that brings our daily sanctification. Okay, whereas the first operation of the cross has to do with my positional holiness, the second operation of the cross has to do with my practical holiness. And you see, this isn't what is true about me positionally in Christ. Listen, this is what is actually true about the life I live in my daily practice. The actual day-to-day living of my life. And I don't know about you, but I'll just tell you, in my daily practice, I'm not a whole lot like what I am in my position. I'm not holy. Sometimes I'm very unholy. In the actual living of my life, man, if you could see what the Lord sees and knows is true about me, you'd see that there are far too many things for which I can be blamed. And you can, if you could see what he could see, there are far too many things for which I need to be reproved. Now, that's what's true in my practice. Okay? And, and I just want to just interject this. You know, the, the people who think that you can lose your salvation, this is something they don't understand. Now, listen, the fact is, folks, if you can lose your salvation... The fact is, every single one of us will lose it. I I mean, listen, if salvation is a matter of coming to Christ and receiving Him, and then you, holding out faithful to the end without sin, you know what? We're all goners. Because there ain't a person since Jesus Christ died on the cross who's ever done that. Now, listen, our salvation is based on our position in christ not our practice and again if your practice had an effect on your position or your practice could somehow get you out of being in christ man, we'd all be goners it's just you can't find any place in this book that even alludes to the fact that there is any possible way that you can somehow get out of christ once you've been placed into christ in fact what it says in ephesians chapter one verses ten to fourteen it says that once you've been placed In Christ, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And Paul says that that sealing is the the promise of God until he brings us into his presence and glorifies us. Because the fact is, y'all, it ain't up to us to hold on to this thing. That's why he sealed us. But now listen. Don't you think for a minute that our practice is insignificant to God because... It is very significant to God. It's extremely important to Him. Yeah, in Christ, I'm positionally holy. But, I've been commanded by God in my practice, first of all, to perform holiness. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15 says, As he which hath called you is holy so be ye holy in all manner of conversation in other words the manner of our life ought to be holy we are to perform holiness in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14 he commands us to pursue holiness he says follow after holiness listen to it without which no man will see the Lord you you wanna know who's really got the item it's the people who are in pursuit of holiness. And I'm telling you, in your life, if there's no pursuit of holiness, what that does is give evidence of the fact that you've never been placed in Christ. Because people who are in Christ pursue holiness. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1, he, he commands us to perfect holiness. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 10, he commands us to partake of holiness. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 24, he commands us to put on holiness. Holiness, and, and, and listen, you know what God's trying to get us to see as he just talks about this over and over and over again? Now listen, he's already made us positionally holy. But then from there, he says, now listen, perform holiness, pursue holiness, perfect holiness, partake of holiness, put on holiness. You know what God's trying to get us to see? Listen, the whole goal of our walk with Christ on the earth is to come to the place that our practice matches our position in Christ. The whole essence of the Christian life is wrapped up in that, folks. Becoming in practice all that He already made you in position the day He saved you. And you know what? It takes an entire lifetime to come to that. And the reality is, for you to ever come to that place to where your practice does match your position in Christ, if it's ever going to be a reality, folks, it's going to be because there is a crucifixion. Listen, there's going to have to be a voluntary, willful, purposeful, personal choice to lay our lives down on his cross and die. Remember what we we, we talked about last time? Tozer said, in the kingdom of God, no one ever stumbled onto a cross. You make a choice to, you remember what he said? Take up your cross. It, it, it wasn't an accident. You, you chose to do it. To take up your cross. And, and you remember us talking about, I, I was trying to get you to see last time, that when we're talking about this, when we're talking about this death to self thing and and personalizing Christ's cross and actualizing Christ's cross in our life so that we are like what Paul said in Galatians 2.20, we're crucified with Christ. Now listen, I was trying to get you to see that we're not talking about some morbid, fatalistic, miserable kind of life. Did you hear that? When we're talking about this dying, when we're talking about this crucifixion, we're not talking about a, a morbid, fatalistic, miserable kind of life. Folks, listen, that is the trick of the devil. And because we, we think that that's what it's going to mean, it, you know what? That's why we're afraid to take it up. That's why we're reluctant to volunteer for a crawl. That's why you can be a Christian for 20 years and hear people quote, take up your cross and, and, and never hear anybody teach it. Have you ever? It's because we think, you know, it's going to be a terrible life. And isn't it true, folks? We all want the conforming, of Romans eight twenty nine to be a reality in our life, we all want to be conformed to the image of Christ. You know what? I believe that that's true about every person that I know in First Baptist Church. I really do believe, with all my heart, you want to be conformed to the image of Christ. I'm just not sure we want the conforming of Philippians chapter three and verse ten. I'm not sure we want to be made conformable unto His death. And I want you to think about it. I mean, we've we prayed the first half of Philippians 3.10, haven't we? Okay, now don't lose the train of thought as we're evidently changing sheets here. Listen, we we prayed the first half of Philippians Philippians 3.10, haven't we? And we've all come before God, I'm sure of it, and say, oh God, oh God, I I want to know you. God, I really want to know you. Oh God, and I want the power of your resurrection in my life. But, But now listen, isn't it true? We just can't get ourselves to pray the second half of Philippians 3.2. Oh God, along with that knowing you and knowing the power of your resurrection, God, something else. I want to know the fellowship of your suffering. And oh God, I want to be made conformable to your death. Now listen, you know why we won't pray that? Because what we think we're saying to God, if we prayed that, is, is Lord, I want to ask you to make my life an absolute and total wreck. God, make me absolutely and totally miserable. God, make me never to know joy and happiness again in this life. I- isn't that true? I mean, is that not what we think the fellowship of his suffering and being made conformable to his death is all about? Not, not, I'm, I'm not looking for you to nod your head, raise your hand, or say amen to this. Don't respond, okay? But I want you to just think with me. Have you ever in your life, now I know you've prayed that you want to know him and that you want his power. But I want to ask you, have you ever prayed, God, I want to know the fellowship of your suffering and I want to be made conformable? To your death. And and I'm telling you folks. This is one of the areas. That as Laodiceans. We're blind in. I want you to think about this. As believers in Christ. You know. One of the the things that we're just. Real big about. Is is resurrection. Right? I mean we, we talk about the power of God. In the resurrection. That after three days. Came down into that cold dark tomb. And Bam raise the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, and man, we hoot and holler and we shout, and we're all about that thing, man, when the Lord came down and raised the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet we never stop to think about the fact, now listen, that for God to exercise the power of resurrection in the Lord Jesus Christ, there was something that Christ had to do. You know what he had to do, y'all? He had, to, he had to die. Now, I mean, that's so simple that some of you are going to go, duh, and you're going to miss the point here. Listen, the power of the resurrection was a reality because Christ suffered the crucifixion of that cross and died. And here we lay out a scene czar wanting all the goodies, wanting all the benefits, wanting all the blessing of knowing Christ and the power of His resurrection. And we never connect that for us to experience the glorious entrance into resurrection life and power that we too will have to suffer and die. We never make the connection, do we? And yet the principle is all over the Bible. It, it, listen, this, this, this thing that we're talking about, this crucifixion, the crucifixion of Christ's cross, listen, folks, and this is, this is the heartbeat of the message today. It's not something to fear, it's not something to resist. Again, that's the trick of the devil. I, I, I mean, listen, folks, do you understand? that because there is no crucifixion in our life, that's why we're so powerless. Because we're so afraid of the cross. Because we fight so tenaciously to avoid the cross. We're powerless. Because it is the crucifixion of that cross that holds the source of life and power. It's there. Listen. Just as it's only in Christ's death that we have eternal life, it is only in our death that we find abundant life. And the devil would love to keep every single person in this room blinded to that fact. Do you have it? His death provided for us eternal life our death holds for us abundant life. Do you understand that? Do you believe that? And and you know what? We're even afraid to say amen, right? Because we're afraid of what's going to happen to us if we volunteer for this. It, it, would you go to the book of John for just a second? John chapter 12. And let me show you how Jesus illustri- illustrates the principle over here. John chapter 12. Jesus says, <clears throat> John chapter 12, v- verse 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a a corn of wheat, what we call today a grain of wheat, But, but he says, except it fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it, unto life eternal. And listen to what he's saying here now. What he's saying is that as long as as that seed resists death, and as long as that seed seeks to hold on to its life, the life is contained in itself and it's useless. But now listen, when you take that that seed and you put it in the ground and it combines with the heat of the ground and the the moisture and the friction of the soil, it begins to die. And as it begins to die, it begins to be broken in its outer shell. And as it is, the life in that grain of wheat is finally released. Do you see that? You understand I mean is this just so simple that I, listen and there are so many of us who are who are struggling and we're trying in our human, own human effort to be better Christians and we're trying in our own human effort to experience the power of his resurrection but like Jesus said about those seeds, day after day and week after week and month after month and year after year we're abiding, Alone. And you know why? It's because we're clinging tenaciously on to life. We're clinging tenaciously to the right, to our own identity, and our own will, our own way, and our own desires, and our own rights, rather than laying our lives on His cross. And allowing this outer shell to be crucified and die, so the inner life of Christ can be released from within. Go to Second Corinthians chapter four, and I want you to see how Paul explains this, the same exact thing that Jesus was just illustrating for us there. Second Corinthians chapter four. Are you guys, you guys tracking with me today? Yeah. It, this is... You know what? I'm glad you're here, Mark. And you know what the truth is? He probably understands it better than most of us in light of what he's been through in the last several months. <clears throat> but watch how Paul explains this. Oh, you know, um, we we like the rip-roaring stuff around here. And this ain't rip-roaring stuff. This is just, this is Christianity 101. It's just, it's not offered in Laodicea. And just about every one of us Missed the class. And what's so difficult now is now, you know, we're graduate students, and we're trying to go back and pick up some of this, and because this is so basic, I'm afraid that some of us think we got it. Don't let me interrupt you all over there. Okay. Wouldn't want to do that. I'm just afraid that maybe, because this is so basic, we think we got it. And I'm just telling you, you know, you know why we've been so long in this thing? It's because I'm working every single week to take these truths and try to put them to practice in my life so that I'm not a, just an absolute phony baloney hypocrite when I stand before you. And i just tell you, our mind is not programmed to even think in this arena. Maybe that's why I'm... I'm struggling to feel like whether or not we're connecting here this morning or not. So, so work with me. Would you do that? 2 Corinthians chapter 4. <clears throat> you'll notice in verse 4, 2 Corinthians 4, and, and you'll notice in verse 4 how he, how he talks about how Satan, the, the God of this world, seeks to blind the minds of them which believe not Lest, now watch this, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. And you'll notice in verse 6 that he says that for those of us who are saved, you know what? That's what's happened to us. Look at what he says. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, and I love this, hath shined in our hearts to give... The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what happened to us, y'all. You know what's sitting inside of you? The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It shined in our hearts. And watch what he says in verse 7. But we have this treasure. What treasure? The treasure of the light, of the knowledge, of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you, that's quite a treasure, isn't it? Watch this now, Paul says in verse 7, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. And you see, back at this time, folks, what they would do is they would take simple, fragile clay pots and they would use them to hold their treasures They'd take those clay pots and they'd put their gold and their jewelry and their deeds and whatever else in that thing. And obviously the thing that made the pot special wasn't the pot itself, but what it contained or what it held, right? All the pot was was just a a formed pile of baked dirt, right? And Paul is saying here, that's the way we are. We're just earthen vessels. We're just a big old pile of formed, baked dirt. And the only thing special about us is that in this big old pile of formed dirt that we call a body, there is the unbelievable treasure of the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So you see, the excellency of the power is of God and not of us. It, it ain't, check me out, man. I'm, I'm styling me some knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. No, you're just a dirty, stinking earthen vessel that holds that power inside. But you see, for what's in these earthen shells, if you will, to be made manifest. That outer shell has got to begin to die and be broken. You see, that's why Paul says in verse 10 that we're always bearing about in the body these earthen vessels the dying of the Lord Jesus. Why? Why? that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live, that is in these earthen vessels, those of us that are still living in these bodies, are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. Do you see that, folks? The reason we experience Christ's death in our body, is to reveal Christ's life in our body. To reveal the excellency. To unveil the treasure. To release the power. But it doesn't come any other way than through the dying of the Lord Jesus. It doesn't come any other way than through the crucifixion Of his cross. You see, listen, this is why you always hear me me saying, God doesn't want you to live for him. He wants you to take up your cross and die. So he can live his life through you. Through your body. And you see, this is what, listen to it like you've never heard it. This is what Paul was talking about in Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet, not I, but Christ liveth in me, but but He's living in me, and it's getting out of me because I'm crucified. Do Do you see what I'm saying? We don't want crucifixion, and because we don't want crucifixion, we don't have the life of God being lived out of us. You remember when we saw the the video of Joseph's son, the the Romanian pastor that had been exiled to the United States for his faith in Christ, and he was talking about the persecution that our brothers and sisters endured over in that part of the world uh, several decades ago. And as he's explaining the whole process of, as his life was coming to an end, he thought, and talking to his wife, He begins to ask for her permission to die. And she grants it. And she said it was like, it was just like something wild took place. It was like, she said, I don't even, it's like you're not even there anymore. I almost see through you. And you remember what he said? We found that our greatest sin was in our desire to live. Guys, we talk a lot about Laodicea, but I think I've nailed it. The greatest sin we commit is our desire to stay alive. He says we're we're letting Christ live through us because of his Crucifixion, but it doesn't happen without the dying of the Lord Jesus. And you know how we experience the crucifixion? You know how we experience the dying of the Lord Jesus? Listen. We take up our cross. We voluntarily choose the way of the cross. And look at verse 8. And because we do, there are times when we'll be troubled on every side. And we'll go through times, look at verse 8, when we're absolutely perplexed. And verse 9, there will be times when we are persecuted. Verse 9 again, there will be even times when, when we'll be cast down. And you see, look at the verses. Listen, the thing that keeps us from being distressed in the midst of all that trouble... The, the thing that keeps us from being in despair in the midst of all of the perplexing situations that we find ourselves in, the, the thing that keeps us from feeling forsaken in the midst of our persecution, and, and the thing that keeps us from just being absolutely destroyed when we've been cast down, look at verse 14, is that we know that He which raised up the Lord Jesus is going to raise up us also by Jesus. And verse 16, the, the thing that keeps us from fainting the thing that keeps us from throwing in the towel, the thing that keeps us from losing heart, the thing that keeps us going is that we know that while all of this humanly horrendous stuff is going on in our lives, what's happening is our outward man, listen, the outer shell of this earthen vessel of our body is perishing, hallelujah. And the inward man is being renewed day by day and as it is more and more of the life of Jesus is being made manifest then Paul is saying here that all of the opposition we face wears down our natural physical life but the inner life of the Spirit is growing stronger and stronger under the pressure and watch what Paul has to say about all of this humanly horrendous stuff that's going on in his life. In verse 17, he says, For our, our light affliction... Now listen, you know what that light affliction is? That's all the trouble and perplexing stuff he was talking about in verse 8. That's all the persecution and being cast down that he was talking about in verse 9. And listen, if you want to compare your affliction with Paul's, he goes into a detailed explanation of it, uh, of it over in Second Corinthians 11. Just cruise over there real quick. Second Corinthians chapter 11. Now he he's told you that he's going through all this trouble and perplexing stuff and persecution, being cast down, and and, and you know it, it, it's all relative, right? Well, let's watch what he's what he's talking about that he's been through. L- look at verse 24 of Second Corinthians chapter 11. He says, Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes, save one. In other words, 39 times I was beaten with a whip. Five times with 39 strikes. Thrice, three times, was I beaten with rods. Once was I stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck, a night and a day I've been in the deep, in journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren. The man's been through some perils now. In weariness, in painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, beside those things that are without that which cometh upon me daily, the, the care of all the churches. And he's talking about the internal turmoil that, hey, uh, I can just relate to the care of one church, man. I don't know what, how Paul did it with all the, the care that he had of all of his responsibility. That's the light affliction that Paul is talking about. Now, obviously, Paul didn't have it near as bad as, as we do. But now go back to Second Corinthians chapter 4. Listen. You you know why all this horrendous stuff didn't stop him just dead in his tracks? You you know why he could look at all of it and genuinely consider it light affliction? Listen. He's not just being a pious gas bag here going, well, you know, our light affliction. No. You know what? In his mind. This was all... Light affliction. You know why he could think that? Because he knew how God was using all this stuff. Look at at verse 17. Paul says, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, watch this statement, worketh for us. And you see, our layout of seeing problem is that we consider affliction adversity. We see it as something that's working against us. Paul saw affliction as advantage. As something that was working for him. And and Paul understood that while this affliction, look at what he says, was, was but for a moment, what it was producing, he says, was something far more exceeding because it was working something... Eternal. The light afflictions for a moment, but what it's doing, it's doing something eternal. And while the affliction in our bodies, he says, is light, he says it, it produces a weight of glory in our spirits. And you know why Paul could could keep that kind of attitude. It was because of the perspective that he had. Listen, Paul understood the second operation of the cross. So crucifixion to Paul wasn't something that he feared, it wasn't something that he resisted. It was something that he welcomed, it was even something that he he longed for. You see, Paul, Paul looked at life a whole lot differently than we lay out Laodiceans do here in, in our country. You see, here's our deal. We want to go to heaven when we die. And until we get there, we think that our earthly life consists of things tangible to our five senses, the things we see, the things we touch, the things we hear, the things we smell, and the things we taste. And you see, listen, with physical, human, eyes you can't see the cross of Christ in the adversity you face and you can't see the benefit of that cross you don't see that with human eyes y'all with, with human physical eyes you can't see the treasure of the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ With physical human eyes, you can't see the life of Jesus or the the excellency of the power of God. With physical human eyes, you can't see the the daily renewing of the inner man. You can't see it. With physical human eyes, you can't see a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. The fact is, folks, with physical human eyes, you can't see anything that Paul's talking about in this entire chapter. That's why he says in verse 18, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And the whole message of this is, we don't see the way that Paul is talking about in verse 18. As Americans, we have a very temporal focus. Because we love ourselves, we have a very me focus. And so we're holding on to me. Holding on to my, mine, and everything that's about me. Just like a caged animal, man, that fights so to the death to preserve its life. The thing that's keeping us from life is the fact that we're trying to preserve it. And God's just looking for some folks somewhere. and come to the place to where they see the reality of what Paul is talking about, so that suffering, so that crucifixion doesn't freak us out, so that we can genuinely pray for suffering, so that we can genuinely pray for crucifixion, because we see that that's where the life is, that's where the excellency is, that's where the power is, and until we die, There is no power of resurrection. Well, there's our sermon for the day. Now let's go out to eat, right? You know what? I appreciate the fact that that's not the attitude you have. What I'm trying to say is, this ain't much of a sermon today. Oh, it's one whale of a life. Amen, <laughs> oh man, oh man. If God could just bring us Laodiceans to the place where we won't resist the most precious thing in all the world. His cross. You say, well, how do I really do this? Come back next Sunday. Because you know what's so cool about God? He tells us how. But if you're going to wait to see how you do it before you volunteer to take up your cross... You've not denied yourself. Now, Lord, I want to ask you today that the things that we've talked about here would not be sermon material. Pray that this would become our life and more and more we see how blinded we lay Laodiceans are we see how we willfully move away from your power while we think we're moving toward it. And the very thing that we're resisting is the source of the life and power. And so, God, help us. Help us as a church to to want to become everything that You've made us in our position in Christ. And may we not so take that for granted that the things that we've heard today are immaterial to us, are insignificant to us, and with our heads bowed for just a moment, would you just would you just talk to God about your life? Would, would you? Would you be willing today to lay your life down upon His cross and sink down into nothingness in His grave? Find the rest of death so that you might experience the power of resurrection. And, and while Christians are, are, are praying, if you're here this morning, you've never received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Yeah, I, Man, I, I know that what you came in today on, on a heavy one but you you came in to where you fully understand what salvation is salvation is coming to grips with your sinfulness before a holy God and the only thing that could remove your sin was that cross and you can come to his cross today embrace the Lord Jesus Christ you can find the forgiveness of sin he invites you to deny yourself. Trusting in anything that you might trust in. Your religion, your works, your baptism, your catechism, your whatever. You deny all of that in any ability in your flesh. Anything that you would do to, to be able to bring yourself to God, you have to first deny all of that. And deny yourself and, and come and cast yourself at his feet and his cross and receive the forgiveness found through the blood of Jesus Christ and take his cross if you have questions about what you've heard today but God's working in your heart as our service is concluded on on either side of the front of this room our pastors are going to position themselves there and they'll do so to, to, to talk to you if you're a woman we'll have a woman that'll talk with you and and show you from the Bible how today you can receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. You can have your sin removed and enter enter into that relationship, that harmonious love relationship with the God of the universe once again. And that that can be yours today. And we invite you to, to come. And now, Lord, work in the hearts of people that need to be saved, and work in the hearts of all of us. the need to take up our cross to truly follow the Lamb whithersoever He go. We ask in Jesus' name